0: Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the 343 Podcast, where we tirelessly work to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer. I'm your host, Gary Kleiban, and in this episode, Joey Cassio joins me to chat a bit about team development versus individual player development. This is an ever-present framing in many soccer circles. That is to say, the narratives out there pit these two against each other as if they were some sort of opposing forces. For example, if coaches care about things like building a recognizable style of play, recruiting new players, and yes, even winning, the claim here in the States anyways is all of that is at the expense of some notion people have about individual player development. Have you ever heard the phrase, just let the kids play? Yeah. That very phrase encapsulates all these notions and narratives which basically say, if you focus on the team, that's bad. If you focus on the individual player, that's good. Well, it's time we start dispelling this. You can't develop an individual player without a team. And you can't develop a team without the individuals. The better the individuals, the better the team development. And the better the team development, the better the individual development. This is another example of a virtuous cycle, which we touched on a bit in episode 299. It might be worthwhile to go and check that one out as well. So the question really becomes, how do you optimize? Because both things, the team and the individual, are fundamental. At the end of the day, sure, there may exist some sort of short, medium, long, and very long-term metric, or metrics that maybe signal whether good or bad development occurred. But, and here's where I put my math and physics hat on, it's practically intractable to precisely ascribe who or what was responsible for a particular piece of a player's development. And it could always be debated because the credit can be split between a whole bunch of parties. For example, how about the player themselves? I mean, They are ultimately the ones who have to do both the work and perform. The parents certainly have influence, so that's another possible credit attribution. The parents or close kin. How about their personal trainer or their team coach or their circle of friends and cultural environment? The club or clubs they happen to play at? How about the league they're a part of or the federation? How about the city, the state? or the country they're in. I mean, all of these things and more have influence. So where does the credit go and how much? In any case, Joey and I had an open unplanned chat on a range of topics that one way or another tie into this individual player versus team development topic. I hope you enjoy, but first, please take a moment while I share a few ads that can greatly enhance your capabilities as a coach or as a parent of a player, Looking to do what's best for them. Here we go. And now a quick few second mentions on what sponsors this episode. It's the best way to support the podcast, but more important, greatly improve your current soccer situation. First, if you're a coach, you've got to check out 343coaching.com. There are both free and premium programs for you there. The premium program in particular gives you full access to watch and listen to players, teams, and coaches in the real life training environment. Now, what I mean by that is that the film and audio are not staged or scripted, such as what you would get at a conference or a typical course or video online. No, no, no. You get to be a legit fly on the wall and steady Brian, who basically helped pioneer a seismic shift in American soccer on how to develop youth players at every level. Among the many now professional players who were under his direct tutelage across many teams, one team in particular, which he started at U10 and led through U19 really stands out. Over a handful of players on that team became professionals. It's incredible work. And the actual training of that team and those players is what you get to use to catapult your coaching. Okay. Second, let's say you're not a coach but you're a parent of a youth player looking for how to best put them on a proper path, the solution for you guys is at 343masterclass.com. And third, if you'd consider going to a private school for academics, either here in the States or in Europe, that also has an integrated soccer program, you should check out acceleratorschool.com. Critically important, the solutions for coaches, for parents, and for players are offered from people who have actually done the work and have an unprecedented track record in the United States. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line. Per usual, we never have anything planned. I saw that you put together a couple bullet points months ago about what to talk about potentially. So. Like I always say, Joey, it's not an interview, but let's just have a shooting off the cuff sort of conversation. Whatever happens, happens. I'll let you get going if that's okay with you. Yeah, for sure. I think we
1: can maybe start with, and this is sort of what I've seen over the years. And I think it's always been sort of the case here in American soccer and probably in American sports in general. The culture is sort of based around like the individual player, right? The focus is individual players and, you know, the parents have to look out for their kid hundred percent. So they see it as just their player. But I think it's missed pretty significantly the importance of what the team provides for the individual player and the team setting. If it's very, very good, then that significantly helps the individual player in their development process. I think that that is missed a lot. And I don't necessarily think it's, you know, because maybe they don't know or they don't think it's important. I just think that a lot of the conversation, the way that the culture is, the way that media covers individual players and not so much collective teams, I think that's just sort of been ingrained into the way that people see the game in general. And so for individual players, I see this a lot. There's no sort of, consideration about team and how important that ingredient is
0: for the individual player. Yeah. Let's see if we can tease out some specific examples. Cause I think at a high level, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it does make a lot of sense to other people. You and I have always kind of been aligned in that regard. This reminds me of the expression I've said to so many, and I certainly didn't come up with it that rings true, that you are the average of the five people you most hang out with or you're most around. So if you hang out with other people who are maybe far more well-read than you, have expertise or are far more ahead in their careers than you, just kind of by osmosis, you are compelled and incentivized without them doing anything to catch up to them so that you feel accepted, so that you feel part of the group if that makes sense, you know, so you on your own have a stronger drive to maybe pick up some books and read some books on um, maybe the things that they were talking about or read articles based on what they were talking about. So you can fit in Joey, you know, you'll, you don't want to be the odd man out. Nobody does. And that goes across domains. So bringing it back to what you just said in soccer, I think that kind of applies. You might be the average of the 18 people on your roster. You feel me? I, obviously that's not perfectly accurate, but you catch my drift. I also want to be a little bit careful because this is not an exact science. There's art and there's a whole slew of circumstances and exceptions to the general rule. Some might look at that as an excuse because you know what excuse you and I and all coaches have always heard for years and years and years. Oh, coach, but I'm surrounded by players who can't play and can't connect the pass. and can't do this. and can't do that. And that's why my performance sucks. And that's why I don't make that late run into the box because, well, my winger isn't going to deliver that ball. He's a ball hog or he always loses it or he doesn't know how to cross a ball. So that's why I'm not making the run because we're probably going to lose it anyways. You've heard these excuses, right, Joey? 100%. Um, And that's just one example of countless examples of excuses, which is lame. You as a player can take that attitude, fine. It's not gonna do you any good. What can do you some good is taking the other attitude. Remember when this whole debate of playing high school soccer or not playing high school soccer and the academy wasn't allowing you to play high school soccer and all that sort of jazz. I try to look on the bright side. If a player wanted to play high school and they were an academy player, They were probably going to be the best or among the best on their high school team. And sure, they were surrounded by lesser players, but you can develop other things that are vitally important. How about leadership? If you are better than all the other guys, how about developing some leadership skills then? Learn how to mentor the other players, train the other players. I don't know, give off the right energy to your other players to lift them up and have them be better. Teach your winger to not lose the ball, as much, or teach him to serve a better cross or tell him, Hey man, I'm always going to be making this late run into the box. The first half of the season, you didn't deliver these. I get it. It's hard, whatever, but let's see if we can work on this because I'm telling you, if you deliver this ball, we're scoring and it's going to make us all look better. Whatever, Joey, you see? So there's two mentalities there. One is the mentality of like everybody else's fault, screw this and So yeah, with that mentality, you are going to get worse. Or, oh man, I'm going to assume the leadership role here because I think I'm the man. All right, then be the man. Does that make sense? I don't know. It's one of the comments that I wrote down. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that brings up an
1: interesting part of developing a team. I've seen many examples of exactly that happening, that taking place. And yeah, it makes it so much harder to then develop a team. But I think if we use the example you gave where a player who's at the top end of the roster, yeah, he, he chooses to try to develop leadership skills and lift the players around him. And I think when a coach takes a team, the players are at different starting points. But as you work, the players can develop and they can get better. And I think if the culture is good and each individual player contributes to that culture, of course, and if you have players with that sort of mentality, lifting each other up, yeah, trying to mentor other players dive a little bit deeper into conversation about what they're trying to do on the field, then that ultimately allows for the development of the team to probably happen much quicker. And then, yeah, that one player has a better situation around him now where, yeah, he
0: can develop himself or herself. And if you're the stud, Joey, okay. I better hope that you are being the actual stud on the team. If you're that good, all right, you better be taking on two or three players at a time and scoring or assisting, or being just a phenom, you you understand? Yeah. And, And then there's the flip side. So that's if you're a player who is among the best. And again, we're referring back to you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, okay? So make the best of your situation in that case. The flip side, let's say that you are on the lower end of the roster or the lowest end of the roster. There's two approaches you can take to it. Either you find excuses again, or you take up the challenge because if you're on the lower end of the roster and everybody's great, well, shit, man, with the right posture, you're going to get better because everybody around you is better. You're going to get better passes. You're going to get better situations because the opponent doesn't care about you. They care about marking Messi. They care about marking the other guys. So you're a little bit more liberated. You have less pressure on you. I mean, there's a whole host of things that are to your benefit if you're on the lower end of the roster. So take advantage of those things and learn from the other guys and then work your dick off to try to climb up the hierarchy of the team. That's one posture. The other posture is not that. The other posture, again, is the excuse side of the equation. It's like, ah, the coach doesn't like me. I'm not getting played because they're playing favorites. My teammates aren't passing me the ball for whatever reason. It's so fascinating, right? Because human beings are messy and I'm not putting the blame on any sort of archetype here. Because we're all like this, Joey. I'm like this. You're like this. We all struggle with this tension in our minds. And then it's up to us to decide what our posture is going to be. Have you encountered that as well? Maybe players on the lower end of the roster and how they approach things? Absolutely. In that case, what I see
1: most is, yeah, it's exactly what you just listed off. Like, oh, the coach doesn't like me or yeah, my teammates aren't passing me the ball. And yeah, the other posture is rare where it's like, okay, this is where I'm at at the moment, but I'm going to work hard and I'm going to try to push myself up in the roster. So I get towards the top. I think that's a road far less traveled by in my experience that I've seen in the youth game. But those players that do take that posture, they usually end up close, if not playing at the college level or Beyond that, I think that's so important. And again, I think what we talked about earlier, there's things that everyone needs to be aware of. And that's one of them. Like just because we're not winning games or your little Johnny didn't score a goal or he didn't get an assist, there are things much, much deeper that have to be thought about when at each training session are these little things
0: taking place that will allow for long term development of the players. It's messy, isn't it? But that's why it's so interesting too. Because it's not 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 5 plus 2 is 7, and 3 times 18 is whatever that is. I can do it in my head. But I think that's what makes it fun, either for coaches or for anybody who works in the space. But it's also what makes it a headache uh, at the same time. (laughs) So I guess it, it just keeps it interesting. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's what came to mind. So let's see if we can tease out a couple of specific examples. I don't know if you have some at your whim.
1: No, I agree with what you said 100%, Gary. I think, yeah, I've seen countless examples over the years of players. They sort of rise to the level that is around them. You know, in most cases, I would say that it's probably rarer that a player doesn't adapt to a higher level whatsoever. You know, it might be smaller or bigger depending on the player, but I think there is some sort of level of adaptation. And then what, I, what I've been thinking about a, a lot is, you know, I think people maybe miss some of the deeper things that are involved in, in being in a team setting. When a team has a specific identity on how they want to play and you're trying to develop that way of playing, those relationships between players, the timing, the rhythm that you develop over time between the players, those are examples that help the individual player very much and it's a part of the individual development process for them to learn and be able to perform in a collective group soccer is very much a collective performance i think maybe here being at the fields you don't see team playing identities on every field when you're at a facility but that is so important to the individual development of a player. And I always think back to one of the articles you put out. I think it was something along the lines of the ingredients of player development. And, you know, you've got the individual, like private training, you've got pickup games and the collective, the team environment is critical and it can't be missed. And I don't know, I think recently, in recent times, I've seen a lot of situations where I think that the team culture, environment isn't valued as much as some of these other things are valued. I think like supplemental training, individual training is popular. It's big here in the States, but I don't think there's a a good enough understanding of what the team environment does
0: for the individual player. Got it. So many things to unpack, man. So many things. I'm taking notes profusely here because a lot of stuff comes to mind. Do you think it at the youth level anyways, is it because parents are the customer You see, because if parents are the customer, then almost by default, it's all about the individual and you're going to have that sort of culture, not just at the team level, you know, putting the coach aside for a second, right? Just looking at the individual families, but also at the club level, the youth club level, you know, the revenue is coming from parents, which only care about their kid. They don't necessarily care about team culture, as you're saying. So that's one thought. The other thought is if you're not looking at the youth level, you're looking at the pro level. This is something we're probably not going to really nail in this conversation, but I think there are a lot of commonalities as well, because from the media, they do tend to focus a lot on the individual and not so much on the collective. Sure, there's some tactical analysis out there. Sure, they're trying to make sense of what they saw in a match, but so much comes down to... Articles on an individual versus the team. I'm sure if some analysis was done, there's way more articles on, you know, from American media. There's way more articles on Pulisic and his circumstances and his performance or lack of performance or whatever than on Chelsea Football Club and how Chelsea Football Club is doing as a whole. I think that's pretty self-evident, and maybe people say, "Gary, thanks for being Captain Obvious." I mean, that's how it should be, but it still doesn't detract from your point that we are still consuming a lot of content that is surrounding the individual and the team environment gets missed. I don't know, just two thoughts that I came up with. Maybe you can comment on that. And I have more thoughts, Joey, but I don't want to overwhelm you. Yeah, no,
1: just to kind of go off that a little bit, Gary, I think that plays a big role. The content that people digest on a regular basis or consistent basis, you don't see, or at least I don't see a lot of articles about like, Oh, the center back reading the body of his teammate to sort of anticipate what's going to happen next so that he can be in the right position to receive a pass. And those are the things that the players start to pick up and develop when they are in a good team environment. And it's just as critical as the individual stuff that, you know, the dribbling, the finishing technique, a lot of the techniques that can be worked on as an individual you know that's what a lot of the focus is on where yeah like the example i just mentioned, mentioned you don't you don't get a lot of that from the media that you you digest here at least in the states from what i've seen and i think that that goes a long way as to sort of paint the picture of what people are looking at when they're watching games they're seeing what's going on whether it's pro whether it's youth that goes a long way of painting the picture of how they see
0: what's going on on the field they're, that's how they're being educated Maybe it's just not entertaining, Joey. Education is not very entertaining, and people just want, oh, look at his haircut, (laughs) you know, because they can, because they can relate to it's a human, and you're a human, so it's like, ah, talk about the humans to me, you know. The team itself is not a human being; it's a collective, and and perhaps not as interesting as the individuals. So, anyways, as I said at the beginning of all these episodes, we're just shooting the shit here, Um, yeah, and, and we're not necessarily providing deep thought or deep insights, but there are going to be some gold nuggets that I can tell you for sure. And I do think the gold nugget here is correct from a development perspective. This focus on the individual without uh, including the individual in the team context is detrimental to development. We really, really need to shift the focus more to the team environment itself and how that amplifies and augments and stimulates the development of the individual. I am 100% on board with that. And I do believe that in general, here in the States, we don't understand that very well. So I'll give an example too. Let's look at two extremes. One extreme, you have a youth team that trains and plays very, very well. And what I mean by that is when you watch them play, it kind of looks like a mini man city. Almost every possession They're at least connecting five passes, sometimes way longer sequences than just five passes. It could be 12 or 22 or 35 passes. And you see the team and the players say, oh, no, the attack is not on. Let's reset the whole play and shift the point of attack and try and probe over there. Oh, it doesn't work out. Reset it all the way back to the center backs, maybe even the keeper, start the whole play over again. If you see that on the weekends here in youth soccer, man, is individual development happening there. I mean, it's very difficult for me to understand how one can't see that as self-evident, that individual players are being developed if that's what's happening. You're creating technical players, you're creating thinking players, you're developing players that understand how to play football. That's one extreme, okay? And we can get to the creativity part and all that stuff in a moment because I know that's one of the main objections to something like this. The other extreme is you go to the field, whether you're watching U11, U18, U12, U15, boys, girls, it doesn't matter. If you see a game that is all transition and rarely do you see five past sequences, such as I just described, and it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, long ball, turnover, long ball, turnover, long ball, breakaway, score, everybody celebrates. If that's what you're seeing, how can you possibly say that individual development is occurring there? compared to the previous example that I try to describe. I think you have to have a real wild imagination or have read really poor sources of information online to believe that that second case I described is developing good soccer players. Anyways, I'll stop there. I have more to say, but I'll stop.
1: You know, hundred percent, Gary, I think the chaos, that's where like sort of the creativity topic comes into play, like just let the kids be creative, experiment things on the field. For me, I don't see that whatsoever. When it's more organized, structured, connecting five passes, the opportunities to do that kind of stuff, the rhythm of the team and the way that they play puts that player in a position to really be able
0: to execute whatever it is and then continue the flow of the team or shoot or whatever. So I gave you the two extreme examples of how a team plays and what we consider a good development environment versus a poor development environment. And I think how the objection of creativity gets injected is, oh, Gary, you're having them play like Pep's Barcelona or Pep's Man City, and you're taking away all the decision making power from the player. You're creating robots because you're giving them instructions, basically, of how to play football. And that's just the wrong way of looking at it. Okay. Because the right way of looking at it is what we are supplying to the team and the individuals is a framework from where they can then express themselves. So instead of, Hey guys, go out there, figure it out. And then it's just absolute. I mean, chaos is always the word that comes to mind, but I want to be a little bit more precise here. It's The solution space that you're telling the players that they have is infinity. If you just tell them, hey, go out and do whatever you want. That is not a good framework or bedrock from whence to find good creative solutions to the game. Because what you're basically doing in that case is you're saying you, Johnny, are the only entity that matters and it's you against the entire universe right? And the only thing that matters is you, not your relationships to the other players, not the relationships to the opponent, not nothing. If you offer Johnny instead a framework from where the solution space goes from infinity down to maybe seven decisions a player might make, and the player really gets to understand those seven decisions, depending on their position, right? Joe, if you're a center back, you have like a certain solution space of what you usually do, outside back, a different sort of solution space, center mid, a nine, etc. But if you provide them that framework in the setting of a team, then all of a sudden, I'm going to run with the seven decisions, Joey. Then all of a sudden, the player has a choice to make from, say, seven decisions. They still have to decide. They still have to scan, analyze the situation, and then make a decision based on an infinite possible space of environments. You with me? Because... The opposing team, all their players and your teammates aren't going to be in the exact same positions at all times when you get the ball. It's going to look different. And then the player gets to creatively decide which one of my seven decisions am I going to make? Am I going to try to dribble and take my man on right now and do a step over or try to meg him? Because maybe it calls for a meg. You're on the sideline at half field and your options are limited. Try to meg the player. If you meg him, awesome you're off to the races. If you don't, it's probably going to ricochet off him and go out of bounds and it's your ball. You see, but the player gets to decide. You with me? So Yeah, 100%. So we are absolutely affording creativity on all sectors of the field. Most creativity happens in the final third because players need to understand that if you're in your own defensive third and you're a center back or you're a goalkeeper, don't try and meg somebody on the penalty spot. I mean, come on, if you're allowing that, okay, I think you are doing a disservice to not just that player, but all the players and the entire team, because you are not teaching. You just aren't teaching the player. If it were a pickup game, Joey, that is the environment where you fuck around like that. And who cares if you get scored on and all, then okay. But this is a different context. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road is that line of Where do you learn A and where do you learn B? You learn most of your creativity, flair, fucking around in pickup games and in pickup environments. That's why you see somebody who I respect a lot, like Catherine Fuller, always advocating, especially the last handful of years of the Brazilians, the South Americans, the French street ballers, the guys in London, right, who grew up playing in the streets. Yeah, you develop special skills on the streets because you get to fuck around. But in the team environment, you don't fuck around. Yeah, a little bit, but you don't just, it's not a fucking free-for-all, Joey. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) I'm on my high horse here.
1: Related to that, I think another objection, not just is the creativity, but it's the development of 1v1 quality, right? And I think that's also an objection to possession-based playing styles is that the players aren't taking on players enough to develop that 1v1 quality but I think sort of like what you said there is room for that solution that allows for the player to do a little something to create a passing lane to be able to keep the ball moving for the team so there is that 1v1 quality still being developed it's just not every single moment that a player receives the ball, he tries to do something like that, like you alluded to in, in the pickup game. I think that's another objection, but absolutely they are they are still developing those qualities
0: within a possession-based team identity. And, and much comes to your job as a coach, you specifically, Joey, and any coach to develop that culture. Hey, Johnny, I want you to be like Neymar. Yeah, man, when you're on the sideline here, you're playing winger and you have your guy isolated 1v1, go at that guy roast him embarrass him right so it's all part of the team culture that you establish and the coach saying we want you to develop one v one capabilities here are the contexts in which you should exercise all of those liberties to try to smoke your guy so it's not that we're saying oh no tiki taka one touch two touch maximum, you know, don't take your guy one V one, you know, just try to create a two V one overload and then just beat your guy like that. And don't dribble. We're not doing that. Some of it is that of course you want to teach overloading and be numbers up. But a lot of it is also what I just said. Be Neymar, Johnny, go roast your guy. Now, if you're a center back, it's a little bit different. You don't tell your center back, go be Neymar. You feel me? You tell them yeah. something else of how to beat somebody 1v1. You know, maybe you kind of posture your body a certain way as if you're just going to connect with your left back and it's a body fake. And then you go drive past the nine who is marking you and drive forward. You teach them these things and you let them do it on the team, but everything in its appropriate place and time. The other thing, Joe, is even all these objections or people who advocate. Oh, we got to let them develop the 1v1 abilities, you're stifling 1v1 abilities, you're stifling creativity. Guys, even if you let it be a free-for-all, that is what this country has been. For as long as I can remember, it has been precisely that, a free-for-all, let the kids play, let them do whatever the hell they want. There was nobody doing Pep Guardiola youth teams here. The first one who ever did it for the country and showed it was Brian, which was 10 years ago or so. It didn't exist and to a large extent still is struggling to catch on because it's a lot of hard work and it's not easy to develop players and develop teams. But even with the free-for-all, you aren't developing a Neymar because you're having your club team that trains two or three times a week be a free-for-all. The Neymars aren't gonna pop out if you let it be a free-for-all, oh, a dribble, Johnny, dribble, dribble, yeah, take your guy on. That's not how Neymars pop out. Neymars pop out, again, to cite Catherine on the streets. The guys develop that shit on the streets and then they come to your team environment and they are already little Neymars, okay? You aren't developing little Neymars in the team. That happens outside the team. And now it's a matter of getting little Neymar on your team and guiding them in a good, appropriate way so that they continue maturing and matriculating and hopefully one day become a professional and have those one v one sort of flair at the pro level. So the objection in closing here, Joe, the objection of your stifling 1v1, fucking nonsense. Yep, I agree, man. What else you got on your list? I don't know, let me crack this thing open. So you said you had episode ideas. So when building a team identity, what comes first? The individual development or the team's development? I think it's pretty crystal clear our our position, Joe. Team development all the way. Can you, as the coach, discourage the players from taking risks while building the team identity? I mean, I just finished saying that it's very difficult to develop a team, as we described, and consequently develop the player that we all want to develop. And since it's difficult, there are a lot of well tended coaches who are trying, and they might be stifling creativity, and they might be stifling risk-taking because they can't strike that balance quite yet, or maybe never, if I'm being honest. They can't strike that balance between team development and generating the appropriate culture for little Neymar to thrive or improve being little Neymar. That's how I see your question there.
1: No, it's a fine line. It's a difficult balance to strike. And yeah, I think over the years, as you gain more experience and you develop a better eye for things and how you want your team to play a vision, then you can communicate better with the individual
0: player of when he can do certain things within the team identity. So here's another one that just popped in my head. I saw that you published, and forgive me for not watching it, I just saw your headline. You published, it it sounds like what was a long sequence of passes uh, maybe a week and a half ago or so from your team playing. Maybe you can describe that, and I'll put the video in the show notes as well. Maybe you can describe what it is that you published there, because I think it's part of what we're talking about, or no?
1: Yeah, I think so. It was our, 2010 or U13 boys team at Rebels Soccer Club in Chula Vista, California. We were in the final of a local tournament and the boys, from a goal kick, they had 24 consecutive passes without losing the ball. And they started off playing to one side, to the center back. He played the left back. He played it inside. And then sort of that channel was closed off. So they reset to the center back. Worked it back around to the other side. Again, maybe the execution wasn't clean enough, so it didn't happen quick enough. So they had to, again, go back the other way. And they did that a few times. And ultimately, yeah, when they tried to go forward, the, the timing from our right back to our winger, it sort of broke down. And then that's when we lost the ball. But yeah, 24 pass sequence in a row.
0: Got it. You're going to have to send me the the raw video probably so I don't have to go through the whole exercise of downloading it from online. If you don't mind, then I'll put that in the show notes for everybody to be able to refer. I have a question on that. And then maybe you can tell me from your experience, were they doing that consciously? Meaning were the players kind of assessing the situation and then as a consequence of them assessing the situation in front of them They decided to execute what you just described, this 24 pass sequence and trying to figure out the game or, and and in many cases, this is true, or was it more of a robotic thing because the team is trained to circulate the ball along the back line, maybe ping their D-mid if he's open and then the D-mid maybe turns and goes forward. You see, there's a subtle little difference there between being programmed to do that or Is it a conscious understanding of the player? This is why we do this and this is why we're doing it now in the game.
1: Yeah, I think it's both. We rehearse that pattern of play without pressure. And just so the players have a good understanding of positioning, spacing, what a good technique or what good execution looks like when doing these things on the field. But then once you are in the game setting, You obviously have to make correct decisions based on the pressure and the defending of the opponent. And so I think it's both. It's a little bit of both where it becomes something that they don't have to think about so much doing like, okay, oh, the ball's over there. I need to get out here. They just start to do it. But then when they're in the moment and they're under pressure, like we talked about earlier, there's a few different solutions that they can choose from and they have to then choose the right solution based on what's going on in the game. So in that in that video I
0: think yeah you're seeing both of those things take place got it would you say that mixture of both things taking place for lack of a better term the robotic nature of it because they've been trained to do these sorts of actions versus the conscious deliberate I'm searching how to fuck the opponent sort of thing would you say that balance that mixture changes over time. So, for example, you have a U13 team, which this is an example of. What about by the time they are U17? Does that mixture of robotically doing it versus consciously doing it change? And what is that change? You see what I'm I getting think at?
1: That's, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's my role as the coach. As we continue to do this and we come across different situations in games, yeah, as the coach, I need to communicate. They will, hey, but yeah, we, we played backwards in this situation, but if you just pause for a second, look up, we can play that pass that's going to kill the opponent and we're off on goal. I think that's where the role of the coach comes in as to teaching them the situations and how not, we can not only keep the ball in the back, but when to go forward, looking for the opponent maybe sleeping in one area of the field, not paying attention to this or that, and then we can capitalize on it.
0: Got you. Because... If you go all the way to the extreme where we're now talking about maybe a top 10 professional soccer club in the world, you see this pattern of play all the time, the circulation in the back, the checking in of the defensive mid, how you progress play, right? The buildup as it's called. You see that, but it's now the mixture there is different. They are not robotic. They aren't being robots when they do that at all. They are all being conscious agents assessing all aspects of the opponent and their own teammates and making appropriate decisions. So when you see them circulate the ball on the back, they aren't just doing it because they were trained to do that the previous week or the previous year, the previous two years. No, the game calls for them to actually do that. And so the players are doing it for that reason. You feel me? That's what I'm going after versus let's go all the way back to the other extreme. Maybe it's a U11 team, U10 team, where this concept is first being introduced to them of circulating the ball in the back and starting to build up play. They are 90 plus percent just being robots doing what they're instructed to do and less than 10% or 5% or 1% conscious agents of assessing the game and how can we screw the opponent over by doing this and, oh, this is the right decision at this point in time. This is what I'm getting at. You see what I'm saying? So maybe- At, at U17, maybe it's like a 50-50, 50%. It's like, oh, we're supposed to do this because this is what we were trained to do. So we're going to do this, right? And the other 50% is conscious. No, we're doing this because, yeah, this is what we should be doing right now because we're up 1-0. It's, I don't know, the 44th minute of the half. We want to play this out. The other opponent is not pressuring us. So yeah, we'll just hold the ball back here for a bit. That, that's a conscious act of circulating the ball in the back. I certainly think it's important to grasp that notion. Absolutely. No, I agree 100% Gary. I think at the youth ages, yeah, you rehearse
1: this stuff, they just start doing it. And maybe the solutions that they're able to see for themselves are the ones that you rehearse, right? They still are being creative to some extent, but they're Just always choosing the solutions that you're doing in training over time as you add layers on to that foundation of how we want to play, the more situational, how we can hurt the opponent, just more awareness to what's going on in the game. Yeah, that happens as they get
0: older. And would you say that that's where the coach comes in? Yeah. Especially with youth players. Yeah. I think the coach has to understand the whole pipeline from youth to pro to kind of Be a good mentor all along the way. And there's very few, in my opinion, it's a rare coach that has all the qualities. Everybody still has to improve no matter how good you are. But for example, if you were a pro player and just retired and they throw you into coach U-17s or something, that does not mean you understand the whole pipeline at all. You were an ex-pro player, congratulations, but you had the perspective of a player the entire time and not the perspective or the skill set of a coach. You have no idea what's involved there. So you are a newbie, a rookie, you're starting from zero, basically. I mean, maybe not complete zero because you actually played versus maybe somebody who never even played and wants to coach soccer from the very first time that you're not on the same footing, but you get what I'm saying, Joey, the whole pipeline, that's a very special trait, a rare trait, Joe. You mentioned I had some other bullet points here. Let me see your list here, Joey. There hey, was Jim. one thing, Gary, that I remember you brought up, and you'd have to explain
1: or go into it because I'm not going to do it justice at all. But I remember we were talking about, like, a, let's say, Walker Zimmerman here in the last American player executing one thing and, let's say, Militao from Real Madrid doing the same thing. It's not the same thing. Yeah it's
0: very different. Yeah. Again, that's why this is art. Yes. I think everyone inherently understands what you just said, that that is a true statement, that it's not the same thing. And yet, why in general does everybody want to make it equivalent? So, for instance, in the past handful of years, all of these video compilation accounts have cropped up on Twitter or on YouTube. And this is with the advent of y Scout, right, where pro games are all uploaded to y Scout. And if you have an account, you can search a player's name and get clips from their games, et cetera, et cetera. So they'll make these video compilations of, just to write off of your example, of Walker Zimmerman doing those diagonal 40-yard pings to his winger. And then they might do the same thing for... <laughs> your, your favorite center back now. Cause you're, cause you're a man United guy. If I'm not gonna say Harry Maguire, don't worry. Um, <laughs> if, if Martinez does that, then it's just, the context is completely different. Yes. The margin for error at the higher levels is so much smaller. So your precision has to be that much more accurate. That's one superficial thing that could probably even be quantified If you do some very nifty computer things, but I'm going beyond that. I see like the biomechanics of it all, like how fluid the body of the player makes the action. There is a quality to it that I can't describe and it cannot be captured, but it's there and it is different. And I'd like someday to maybe conduct an experiment whereby I get video of say center backs doing that 40 yard ping and somehow obfuscate who they are. I don't know, I can probably go from color to being black and white, getting rid of all you know, insignia that can identify the player or maybe blur their face off or whatever, maybe keep it at a distance. I'd be very curious if we conducted a survey if, if people can distinguish who is the higher quality player and who is the lower quality player. That'd be a really cool experiment because I am convinced that there is a very different way of stroking the ball. Between the two, if Iniesta receives a pass, a 20 yard pass, that seems simple. If he receives the ball, it's very different than if Christian Rodon receives the same exact ball. The mechanics are different. It's all different. I think that's what you were after, right, Joe? I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, it's something, Gary, that I've always had a difficult time, like communicating that. It just in casual conversations about players, being able to explain sort of the difference in technique because yeah, every player is so different. And then the the conversation of who's a higher level player than the other, it's something that I've had trouble communicating, but I think the term biomechanics is a good word. And in my case, I think over time, I've developed a better eye to be able to see that kind of stuff. When I was younger, I don't think I could really see the difference so much. But now I'd like to think that I can see the difference. It's just still something that I have a hard time communicating with people. Because like you said, it's so hard to describe those differences between
0: players. Yeah, incidentally, this is actually something that I've been developing with the 343 Masterclass. One of the goals there is to develop the eye of the students, to be frank, of whoever's partaking in the class. And my approach to that is making countless clips of quality, right? Quality strokes, quality way of receiving the ball, all that stuff, but just countless, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And if you just sit there and watch, because I think that's the key, you have to watch so much football and be looking for it so much and have somebody also guide you a little bit. Oh, see, this is the difference between these two things. You have to watch so much over the course of so many years that eventually you get to this point. That's my opinion. And I would like to accelerate that process so somebody doesn't have to spend 12 years on the sidelines studying and studying and being astute and watching and highlighting and rewinding tape. I don't want it to take 12 years. I'd like to accomplish that hopefully within a year or two years where somebody can immediately see, oh, that's Walker Zimmerman. We ain't, sorry, he's not playing for Barcelona. This is Rafa Marquez. This is why Rafa Marquez is better than Walker Zimmerman. I can see it. Maybe I can't describe it to you, but they see it. That's my goal. Have you heard the expression, form is temporary, class is forever, or something like that? I think so, yeah. Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, It's maybe I'm botching it, but that's a phrase that's been in the soccer circles. For quite a while, the English and even American soccer circles for a while. And to me, what that communicates is form is temporary. Yeah. Eventually you get old. You're like me, you're 40 something and you can't run 90 minutes. You don't have the agility. You don't have the, all those sorts of things, but class is forever. So I can still just stand still, put a soccer ball in front of me and then stroke it, do that 40 yard ping. That kind of doesn't go away. Sure. It's not how it was at age 20. But you can tell, oh, this motherfucker has some technique behind him. You see what I'm saying? I think that will also persist between the two guys, say a Rafa Marquez, a Walker Zimmerman. When they are 60 years old, Rafa is going to be able to go bing, and people are going to be able to tell. And then Zimmerman 60 years old, and he'll go bing, and people will be able to tell, <laughs> ah, you were a great soccer player, I'm sure. But Rafa over here, there's some class in his stroke. Yeah. Well, that's a good way of
1: putting it. Form is temporary, class is forever.
0: Oh, you know what? Before I forget, I think an easier exercise for people to recognize what we're talking about is in juggling. There, When you see two players juggle, there is the player where it looks just natural and smooth and the act of juggling looks effortless. It looks like... Their brain is not doing work to juggle the ball. They're not thinking about it. It's loose. They're having fun with it. It's just that they're doing whatever they want with it. Like it's easy. And then there's the other player who can juggle just as long, do all the same tricks, no problem, but it looks like they're working for it. Yeah. It looks robotic. The movement is not Smooth. It looks more like a robot was programmed to do this with their legs. La, la, la. And the other guy, like Maradona, the famous video of him warming up when he was playing for Napoli and the background music is playing and he's just kind of like juggling and dancing with the music at the same time. And the guy is doing this just effortless, my friend. So I yeah. think that might be a good starting point for people to learn the difference between. The quality that you're talking about. I think so. I think that's a good example.
1: Two videos that are on YouTube, I'm sure that came to mind were Messi and Danny Alves pre game for Barcelona. They're 40 yards apart, hitting the ball to each other in the air and keeping it up. One would hit a 40 yard volley on a line to the other player, and the player would just effortlessly take it out of the air, take a couple of touches, and then hit it back the same distance in the air perfectly. And then Messi would bring it out of the air. And then the other example is Tiago Alcantara and Rodrigo, when they were with Spain, same thing. Looks like after like a training session or something, they're a good distance apart and they're doing the same thing. Just, it looks so effortless for them. Yeah, I think that's good, Gary.
0: Yeah, I, I think I even put it, put out a tweet when Tiago Alcantara, one came out a handful of years ago saying, hey, the moment American players are doing this, then we can talk about the future is bright and all this progress, and nonsense. But I get, I think again, there's going to be a lot of misinterpretation because you might be able to put, I don't know, Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney on either side of the field and have them try that over and over and over again, and you'll be able to capture a video at some point of them executing maybe that six times back and forth, but it's not the same. It's not the same. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I a, know same, what you mean, man. It's the same thing as the rondos. You know, when US Soccer first started publishing their rondos, or oh, check out our rondo here. And I was watching and people were saying, Oh wow, this is amazing. I was watching I'm like, Oh my god, who let you publish this? This is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> this is a disaster. But nobody can tell the difference, man. Yeah, you're right, man. Hey, sorry I always do all the talking or so much of the talking, no. right?
1: This, was, this wasn't one of my best ones, man. I was a little off, but uh, I think the conversation is good. I think the things that we touched on are really good, especially for those who participate in the youth game. So I think these things are so
0: important. It's important. I, and I hope we don't come across as kind of arrogant cunts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't no. think, I I hope don't not. think we are, dude. I think, bro, like, and this isn't just feigning... Being humble. I think we're humble guys, dude. You just have to kind of like get to know us because we're always second guessing ourselves and doubting and tossing ideas back and forth at each other. Oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I don't know if this is the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. It's constant, constant analysis and banter of that nature. It's just that there are some things that I think need to get out into the wild for people to hear. And then to digest and, and analyze and criticize as they see fit in their own environments or whatever, because it's not being said, Joey. And so, yeah. fuck it. I'll say it then. I'll be the bad guy.
1: Yeah. I don't put a lot out publicly, but I've told you before we did this recording here that this has been something that's been on my mind for so long. And I, and I want to at least just put out thoughts about it and people can digest it how they want but it's not easy for me to talk about these things all the time. I like to think of myself as a humble person. I'm pretty reserved, but man, this is just one of those things that I think it's so important for people, at least like just have this sort of in your brain. And then when you're out watching things going on on the field, evaluate for yourself. But just this conversation, I think provides a different perspective to things.
0: Good, man. Listen, Joe, thanks again. For doing this, we have to do it regularly. Yeah, I've always been pushing you to be more out there in a good way. Obviously, where can people find you? This is something I'm pretty bad at with many guests, so I'm going to try to shift it a little bit. Where can people find you online if they haven't found you yet? My Twitter handle is Casio C A S -S C
1: I O underscore F G, and then the other place where I post stuff somewhat consistently, I
0: guess, of Instagram, and it's Joey underscore Casio, C-I-S-C-I-O. Brilliant. And I know you're always open to helping people out. I've sent people your way and recommended people to you, and you've always been very courteous and awesome with your time with them too. All right, dude. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, there's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers, everyone, and keep building.